You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. This panel is called Non-Conciliatory Fantasy. And I haven't really given my, um, my panelists any kind of consolation as to how this panel is going to be run. Not Basically, squat. Exactly, not squat. What I actually wanted to do, a panel like this is, a term like this usually comes down to arguing about definitions. And how I wanted to proceed was start at one end and have the panelists briefly introduce themselves and give a succinct, off-the-cuff <laughs> definition, their definition of how they view or what non-conciliatory fantasy is. Obviously, the basic definition, fantasy that does not console. But as in everything else, the devil is in the details. Once we get a quick uh, selection of possible definitions, I feel we can move forward and kind of pick at the details from there. But I think this is a really good place to start. And um, I guess I'll start to my right, or maybe to my left. <laughs> no, <depending> that's fine. On... <laughs> I'll start to my right if you'll uh, introduce yourself and um, a brief definition. Um, my name is Jim Mintz, and I have it, annoying author sitting next to me. Um, over to you, Steve. No, uh, I find it very interesting that, of course, everyone tries to claim there's new... Great new fades, great new fads, things we've never seen before. And of course, to me, non-conciliatory fantasy is the first thing that we have in written form. There's the wonderful civilized man, the wild man in the wood, and the crazy-ass non-conciliatory adventures of Gilgamesh and Enkidu. And we've been doing it for 5,000 years ever since. So I reject the notion this is something new. This is something old that's new again. How's that? That was excellent. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. Look, I broke it already. It's amazing. (laughs) I'm not surprised having read your books. <laughs> Everything breaks in my books, yes, especially people. Well, I, I'm assuming this is a, um, a panel where we're not going to agree on anything, because it's not what the topic's about. So um, I, I, well, I'm sorry, Steven Erickson, I don't seem to have. I'll use James. To... Are you making one? Um, I guess, yeah. I, I mean, a lot of the things that inspired me were, were those elements of fantasy novels that were not um, within the, the, the standard tropes of, of uh, I guess, traditional. No, he spelled it. That's the, that's the other Erickson. You know, I just had somebody Jim, say. Jim, can I have you settle down over there? Settle down. Yeah. I just had somebody out in the hallway tell me that um, they met the other Stephen Erickson at Tempe, Arizona, but he was balder and taller. And he was the one writing that single series. And I had to say to the guy, oh, that was me. So I've actually, I've actually shrunk over the years. And, and so, but grown hair. Yeah, well, there is that. Anyways, I'll pass it on. Go ahead. Okay. I guess you're next. Oh, okay. I, I just wanted to add before I start um, that if anyone doubts that Jeremy Lassen is a badass, he's actually on a dead or alive wanted poster um, for my new book, Finch. So. That's awesome. <laughs> It's only because I'm on the poster that I let you get away with that. <laughs> I know, I live in fear. But, um, 
I, I think actually in some, some degree uh, the, the gritty realism is a, a correction, sometimes an overcorrection for the escapism, which is why, uh, and, and actually a good overcorrection, like uh, Joe Abercrombie in Heroic Fantasy could be seen as an overcorrection or a correction of all of the heroic fantasy that, you know, everything ends wonderfully and, and there really isn't much political intrigue and everybody gets what they want. Um, I, I actually come up from a kind of a noir standpoint because Finch is basically, my new novel is basically a, a, a noir mystery with a fantasy setting. And, uh, you know, in those books, it's always the gritty streets and always the, almost to the point of, of ridiculousness, I have to say, in some of the books. But I do think it's like an overcompensation in, in cases for uh, a whole bunch of books that, that do the escapism thing well. So, Can you all hear me without this? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I sort of figured that they didn't need it, and I don't much like to use them. Uh, I basically, when I looked at this des uh, description, I thought horror. And, you know, I mean real horror. And actually, this says fantasy, but I think some of the best short horror fiction isn't really fantasy. Um, Chickamauga by Ambrose Bierce that he actually took from a memoir called Company H by a fellow named Sam Watkins. Uh, that Chickamauga is actually a cribbed description of the events that Sam Watkins witnessed after the Battle of Chickamauga. And that's horror by any standard. It's non-conciliatory by any standard. And if it isn't fantasy, I don't think that matters. Uh, I'll throw in one more as horror, um, the cold equations. Mm. And no, it isn't fantasy except, of course, nothing like that could happen. I mean, you know, for all sorts of good reasons, it couldn't happen. That is a horror story. So. Okay. Thank you. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step back and um, do some of the, the diagramming of the term non-conciliatory that I think has gone on in various sundry places on the internet for a few years now. But so fantasy that does not console um, is often defined in opposition to um, commercial, the category of commercial fantasy um, that imitated the work of J.R.R. Tolkien, which you know, is kind of held up as you know, one of those primal consoling fantasy sources. And so I think we have an interesting um, couple of different views of what non-conciliatory fantasy is. It's something that's always been with us. It's something that there may be an intersection with other genres, the noir, the horror. And I just wanted to ask our panelists, does your term or your view of this non-conciliatory, the body of work that you view as non-conciliatory fantasy, is it always in opposition to or reactionary to conciliatory fantasy? Or is, does it stand on its own? Is you know Chani Mieville just a reaction to J.R.R. Tolkien, or you know was Gormenghast written before Tolkien and thus is not a reaction? Is there, what's your what's your views on that? Anybody? Yes, Gormenghast was before Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> what? That was the question, wasn't it? Yeah, oh. Thank you. Uh, and also the answer is all of the above, and that you'd have to look on each individual author's case, but. I think that it's never a simple answer about why someone writes what they do. And of course, the most fascinating aspect is 
talking to the readers who take so much more out of the book than you ever imagined was even in there as an editor. I imagine the same thing as an author. Um, and I think that um, it really depends on the grist for the mill in terms of the inspiration for the author. Some wallow in trying to be the anti-Tolkien, and there's others who do it as an homage, but take it to a more, with a more modern or even postmodern sensibility and, and everything in between. And it, you'd have to ask the individual authors what they really think. And of course, the reader's reaction will oftentimes be very different than what the authors intended. But it, it's a little unfair to Tolkien also, uh, mm. because I don't think you can look at his description of Mordor mm. and not think of the Western Front, yes. uh, which sure screwed his life up, his head up forever. Yeah. Uh, there's an awful lot of Tolkien, including the conclusion, that is in no sense conciliatory. Th this is the end of everything that mattered uh, to all the people that matter. And yeah, there's a new world, but it's not one that the characters that you started out with will ever be a part of. Well, um, and not to mention, much of what was the best of that world is now going to cease to be um, yeah. with the elves, mm -hmm. and yeah. et cetera. Along I mean, with the people. I, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think of it as more of a haunting tale, um, well, and despite there, the fact the heroes win. There is a, there is a, a, a really interesting fine point when you, when you point that out, that, you know, Tolkien's work isn't all you know happy fairies, and there is a dark edge, and its conclusions are not happy. But w I've heard it argued that one of the th defining features of conciliatory fantasy is, you know, it's a very modernist literature in that it acknowledges that the world is screwed up. World War One, all these atrocities of the modern world are really bad. But the consoling factor in the Tolkien's literature and in a lot of the the, the lesser imitators is that it's presenting prior to this, this terrible modern age, things were really wonderful. The good old days were really good. And that is the consoling feature of that fantasy fiction. Mm. And so I think a lot of non-conciliatory fantasy blows up the notion that the good old days were so good. Well, I'm thinking what the conciliatory stuff is, is actually, it's all structural. Right, you're setting up a series of tropes that are then recognized by the audience that you want to reach. And so those are the things that actually satisfy the reader. And what I, I think what's happening now is there's almost a, possibly an evolution in fantasy. So there's a bit of reader fatigue. Mm. How many times can you rework these same tropes? Right. How many times can you do this again and again? And, and actually, yeah, I think the, um, the whole thing about whether uh, Lord of the Rings is conciliatory or not or escapism, I mean, when I read that as a kid, I was absolutely horrified by the latter stages of Frodo's quest. I mean, what I took out of that book is that, you know, characters you want people to care about, they do things that are hard-earned, you know, and it's always tough. I mean, I didn't actually take anything escapist uh, out, of, out of Tolkien. And you can even read Tolkien today, the stuff, that, the pastoral stuff that's supposedly anti-industrial as green movement stuff if you wanted to. He obviously didn't mean it that way. He meant about the preservation of a certain social class and way of life, perhaps. But today, a modern reader can read that as a reaction against you know, pollution and all this other kind of crap. So, Well, I'd actually disagree. I think that it was actually a deliberate attempt to point to pastoralism, and he was anti-industrial. Uh, right, but it doesn't matter. But it wasn't how right, readers it wasn't interpret it today, green. is what I'm right. saying. I agree with you. That's what I was saying. And Bierce, after all, was reacting to the Civil War. Yeah. Uh, and really hard to find anything bleaker or more bitter, if you will. Yeah. A, a, a similar kind of reaction to a, a, a great war, a, a, a yeah. modern atrocity. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, yeah World the, War One and Tolkien, Beers yeah. and so yeah. on. World War One wasn't history to Tolkien. Right. The Civil War wasn't history to Beers. To right. Beers. Uh, my son took a course in the Vietnam War as history. Believe me, what he knows about it and what I know about it are not the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm just gonna um, I'm gonna hold off the questions at least until we get to the half hour mark. Please do keep your thoughts, and I do want to go backwards and forwards and touch on stuff. But I, I think we've got an interesting thread that I wanted to follow up here. Um, the panel talks about, or the title talks about how this is um, prior to the, you know, before the last 10 years, you know, non-conciliatory fantasy. And I think your statement about writing that is not a reaction to history, but to a personal experience or a generation's experience. And I just wanted to kind of use that as a stepping off point for, I wanted to ask everyone here to talk about a piece of fiction that they view as non-conciliatory, a specific author or work, um, and and maybe talk about how it is a of a, not a reaction to history, but of that author's time and place, and what that you know how that related to their ver views of consolation and non-consolation. Um, for me, I'm going to totally like trample on maybe some people's um, picks, and I wanted to mention the work of Glenn Cook who obviously, um, you know, was a combat vet and served and saw the horrors of war directly. It wasn't something out of the history books. And I think his Black Company work is his entire canon from science fiction to fantasy is filled with images that I think we associate, that a lot of people who talk about non-conciliatory fantasy look to Glenn Cook a lot of times and his work. And I think his work is very much grounded in his personal experiences you know, as as a vet, as a combat vet. So, but I, whoever wants to go, I, I don't actually have a book to mention because I was going to mention Glenn Cook. But I wanted to make uh -huh. the important point that we that we tend to think of fantasy as um, not related to the real world. Really, I mean, it, it, that's you know because it's said in, in in another place often, and yet there is this autobiographical element, um, and I think that's why sometimes we think of it as historical, or we think of Lord of the Rings as something that was remote from the author in terms of the events that he's to, he, he's kind of trans you know, mogrified in his imagination. Um, but fantasy writers use deeply personal events in their fiction all the time, and sometimes those coincide with the historical events. So. Absolutely. Well, so I got two comments. One on uh, Jeff's comment about how it's not related to the real world. Um, I was an uh, editorial assistant who worked on Terry Goodkind's first four novels, and I remember when, um, I actually think it was book five, Soul of Fire came out, I don't know, whichever one it was, um, the novel was a very thinly veiled Romanoclef about Bill Clinton. There was this minor duke who liked to diddle and kill scullery maids and was a horrible, horrible person. And I think the wife was even named Hillary or something like that. I mean, it was really just a very thinly veiled Romanoclef. And you go to, uh, I remember the hundreds and hundreds of responses on Amazon saying, why is he not advancing the main story? Why is he writing about this silly little minor baron who has nothing to do with anything? And it was just vroom. I don't know how he could have, short of calling him Bill Clinton from Arkansas, how he could have not you know, made it more thinly veiled. And yet, and yet the readership level were just completely missed it all because they went for that escapist fair and that's what they were seeking from those novels. Um, you talk about from the personal experience and the visceral experience. Now, I've never served in the military. I am not the kind of person who responds well to authority. Um, but I do remember seeing R. Scott Baker 
when R. Scott Baker's first novel was shown to me in manuscript form. Um, wonderful, wonderful series that I regret letting get away, but it showed up on my desk only a couple months after September 11th. And in terms of the fantasy setting, it was a very Mideastern flavored with jihadists and things like that in it. And for me, on a personal level, was much too raw to touch. I, I read about 200, 300 pages of it. I really thought it was wonderful. I kept stopping reading it because I couldn't, uh, I couldn't deal with it. And you know that visceral level of experience as an editor doesn't happen that often. But it was a book that I just, I said, this is terrific. I can't read it. I can't read this now. Maybe you know if nobody buys it in three years, come back to me. But right now, I can't deal with this. Um, and, and so, somewhat non-conciliatory. Did, did anybody else want to mention any any specific works um, that? Or not Glenn Cook, sorry. sorry. <laughs> well, no, I mean, he's such, he's such the obvious one, at least for me, you know, and definitely the inspiration for a lot of the stuff that myself and, and Esteban were writing. So, no, he's, he's the perfect, perfect example. Um, have anybody, we I touched on it briefly, and I think Dave brought this out quite clearly, there's a lot of examples of pre-Tolkien fantasy fiction, and prior to the marketplace being defined by, you know, Tolkien's type of fantasy, the fantasy genre was was much more varied. I mean, even now, it's 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 kind of a renaissance of the different types of fantasy. But prior to Tolkien, there were writers like Gormenghast, and there were writers, as you were saying, and and I think it's very interesting that horror fiction which by its definition is often extremely non-conciliatory, there's various working definitions of horror, but it's often been seen as a subset of the fantasy genre. The World Fantasy Convention and the World Fantasy Award has always included horror, works that are explicitly horrific or marketed as, hor as the horror genre are under the umbrella of fantasy in the tradition of the World Fantasy Award and the World Fantasy Convention. And so I wanted to ask anybody if they had any favorite specific pre-Tolkien works or specific horror works that you thought might fall under the rubric of non-conciliatory non fantasy. And it, Dave definitely led off that charge um, already. Yeah, uh, Fierce is the obvious one to me. And some of it is fantasy, as a matter of fact. Uh, not a lot of it isn't. Okay. Um, oh, sorry. Uh, there's a work called um, by Alfred Cuban called um, I think The Outside or something like that. I can't remember the exact title, but it's a horror novel. It's kind of like it's actually pre-Gormenghast that has some decadent uh, uh, literature elements in it. Um, that's definitely horrific and definitely fantasy and non-non-conciliatory fantasy. That I think is one of those um, touchstone works that hasn't been used as an influence enough. Come to think, could I throw something else Please in? Do. Because it, it suddenly struck me, because uh, thank you for reminding me. Uh, Clark Ashton Smith. Ah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, with, with all the stuff written about Lovecraft's alienness and all that, no. No, if you want a really alien viewpoint, a mm. really inhuman viewpoint, that's Smith. And he gets focused on because of his language, which he used poorly. Uh, he, he, look, uh, E.R. Edison had an enormous vocabulary. Any word used by Edison is used as precisely as a word used by H.G. Wells. Uh, Smith did not have that command of the language he used. But, 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 the stories, the, a story like The Island of the Torturers, uh, The mm. Garden of Adamfa, these are 
utterly inhuman. They are utterly horrible. And there is no redemption for anyone or anything in them. And they are really amazing. I, I don't mean all of Smith is great, and I certainly don't mean that Smith's mm -hmm. language is great, but this was a man who really did do, it's not non-conciliatory. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't recognize the importance of humanity. <laughs> it, yeah. in, in the real sense, much more than Lovecraft who gets the name for it. Right. Uh, no, and, and, and actually, I just add that he, he is actually someone who would have read Alfred Kubin's The Other Side and would have been familiar with decadent literature and would have been one mm -hmm. of his influences. Yeah, sure. That's, yeah. that's exactly yeah. 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 Thank you for reminding yeah. me, as I say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll I go ahead and dig deeper <laughs> yet again. I mean, <laughs> the tales of Gilgamesh and Kita were highly non-conciliatory, especially if you weren't one of the two heroes. Um, right on through Greek mythology, where indeed most of the fantastic elements meant very um, unfortunate things for humanity. You take a look before fairy tales and folklore and myth got sanitized and recorded and made into kid stories were extremely uncomfortable and non-conciliatory. In fact, it's only been, uh, well, that's not really true, but a lot of um, fantasy throughout history has never been about making feel, people feel comfortable. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's to make sure they are fearing the bumps in the night. And it's only been in the last 100 years or even less, last 50, 60 years, where the majority of fantasy um, or even a significant portion of fantasy was intended to be something you identify with. Um, don't get me wrong, there's heroes, people you want to root for and stuff like that. But, you know, it's only been in the sanitized 20th century that, that the heroes are going to always win and you can feel comfortable with that. And we've started having that reaction as a more modern movement against that, well, including the fine novels of this man right here. Yeah. I, <laughs> I tend to think of the Malazan Book of the Fallen as yeah. the absolute pinnacle of adult fantasy fiction. Yeah. Um, there is... Sex in it. Yeah. Well, that's the Terry Good kind. How we get back there? No. No. No, no. Yeah, well, anyway. But, uh, you know, it's, yeah, there are no prologues. There is no, here's the evil dark overload. It's all shades of gray. Um, he doesn't hold your hand. He ties three anvils to your feet, chucks you in the middle of the ocean, and says, good luck. And if you manage to, you know, get those feet untied and break, uh, break surface of the air 300 pages into Gardens of the Moon, he will then own your soul. You'll taste that sweet air of and, Malazan and, and never look back. Yeah, and I'm not surprised either because his typical anecdote, uh, Steve's will, will end with something like, and then I had to walk 20 miles barefoot out of the jungle after my plane exploded, so. <laughs> Hold on a sec, I just have to pay. <laughs> and I'm not just saying that because I'm the one who bought the 10-book series for the U.S. market, because I left that company several yeah, jobs okay, ago. We don't, we don't need to hear about this nepotism. So that's why I got fired, eh? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, um... <laughs> no... Go ahead, I, go just, ahead, I just want to add one little thing, which is that uh, you do see this horror influence play through to very commercially popular series like George R. R. Martin's fantasy series, I would argue, does not work without a very strong horrific element. And he definitely, I think, he, he, he has all those precursors in his head. I know he does. So. One thing that I wanted to touch on um, briefly, I think there's a relationship between um, the sub, sub, sub-genre of, I don't know, refer to it maybe as the, the Dying Earth, Jack Vance and Dying Earth literatures, which, you know, even earlier than that, um, Hodgson's The Nightland was one of the primal examples of that. And I think there's definitely 
if if they're not treading in the same pool, the the water composition is actually very similar between non-conciliatory fantasy, secondary world non-conciliatory fantasy, and the kind of dying earth genres. Because Vance was obviously mixing and matching a lot of science fiction yeah. and fantasy Sword components. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. so I was wondering if you guys saw any or had any comments about uh, the dying earth subgenre, the near future. Well, Zotique. I yeah. mean, Clark Ashton Smith's Zotique. Yeah, yeah, once uh, again, I mean, that, that is explicitly a dying earth. Right. Yeah. I also think of um, Jeff's um, Venice Underground, mm. which oh. is maybe not a dying earth, but I think... We've been around yeah, remiss not mentioning Gene Wolfe as well. Right, yeah. right, exactly. <laughs> exactly, that's what I was hoping to kind of tease out from my panelists. Thank you. Uh, the thing about Vance is he always seems a little lighter because he disguises it. Like, Kajal is doing horrible things, but the people around him are even more horrible, so you kind of don't see it right away. Which <laughs> 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 I always kind of liked. And, and the other thing that Vance does, and I think it keeps him from being as attractive a writer as, as, as people would find him, uh, the hero will do something that is described as being completely heartless and, you know, they, here's the, the great hero who has saved, you know, humanity and we've let him go off and be a slave to the monsters from whom he'd, he'd saved us, um, Mazarian the, the magician. Yeah, and it's just put that way. But if you look at what's actually happening, you have this hugely powerful wizard. Re and yes, he has saved us, and he is hugely powerful. And when he goes away, nobody is going to actually want to bring him back. It's not that you know they don't recognize what he's done for them. This guy is too fucking dangerous to have him around. Right. And, but but yeah. it's ne that isn't said. It's shown. But if Vance would simply say things like that, then the viewpoint character is not a heartless monster. He's a pretty understandable human. In the context. Look, yeah. look at the problem with the guy who has been out there on the front lines for America and his given everything he had, parts of his body and much of his soul. And he comes back. And is he really the fellow you want in the apartment next to yours? And I'd say that as somebody who was maybe kind of that person myself. <laughs> and it, you know, it, but Vance never makes that explicit. But it's there in the books. There are more, I think, they are softer than they appear to be. Okay. Well, I think also what's happened is That's a lot of, <clears throat> over time, people have forgot the notion of heroes and um, forgot, rather, the traditional notion of heroes, which was certainly as a flawed character. And um, so we started to see, it's almost the comic book superhero thing, um, where the heroes have to be ultimately virtuous in every aspect of their behavior. And I don't know, maybe, maybe in terms of as we sort of grow up and get older and having read all this stuff, you know, I, I grew up reading Burroughs and all that kind of thing, and then that's your kind of hero. Um, <laughs> but you do reach a point where it's just, oh, it's Ed, not interesting. Edgar, Edgar, Edgar Rice, not William S. Oh. Okay, okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I actually wanted to have you explain further about um, Gene Wolfe's relationship to non-conciliatory fantasy since you brought him up. Thank you. Because <laughs> I think it's Soldiers in the Mist series. Gosh. 
the is claw a, of the non-conciliatory. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Where do we start? I'm, all right, better yet, let's try and pick something out of his entire, you know, 40-odd-year career of writing that Leiter might the be mist, vaguely soldiers in the mist. that might actually even be conciliatory in any fashion, and I'm struggling to find something. And Gene <laughs> will be the first person to say that his service in Korea is at the core mm. of what he is. Right. And indeed, uh, and indeed, you talk about the flawed heroes um, and the flawed narrators, and the flawed narrators talking about the flawed heroes, and the flawed narrators <laughs> who are the flawed heroes, who present you know the story as as it should be told, of mm -hmm. course, and you yeah. should trust everything they say. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think his novel *Cute Pretty Things* was kind of conciliatory. Gene yeah, Wolfe's right, yeah. that, that one, but other than that, pretty much not. <laughs> Yeah, peace. There you go. The, the long <laughs> one, the big fat one. That's the one. There. Now, if you're gonna, if you're really looking for a good touchstone, um, I recommend the fifth head of Cerberus yeah. because yeah, it's say. a single contained, three linked novellas in a single volume, and you'll discover whether or not you like Gene Wolfe. Um, <laughs> from there, and if you decide you do, by God, you've got a glorious chunk of reading ahead of you. Yeah. Start with the book of the new sun, go to the book of the long sun, go to the book of the short sun. You're now 13 <laughs> volumes in, and seek out his other books after that. Mm -hmm. Pirate freedom. I could do, you know, you I have done two hour panels freedom. on Gene Wolfe, so I won't get started. <laughs> Pirate freedom, if that yeah. is serious. Um, I've totally been jumping around in a lot of different directions. I wanted to give my panelists an opportunity to touch on anything specific or any works or ideas or thoughts. Um, and then after giving you that opportunity, I wanted to kind of open us up for um, some questions from the audience. So if anybody had anything they wanted to say. Well, uh, it's one of the things that occurred to me, it's interesting, um, and I'd, I'd have to actually think about this a little longer, um, how much of this is a factor of nationalism? You get into romanticism, nationalism, the movement of pastoralism, how is it informed on fantasy fiction historically, and how is it affecting fantasy fiction now um, in terms of those factors? I, I don't think writers go in ever thinking, well, actually, you go back to the 19th century, so it wouldn't work, um, <laughs> are, are, are really thinking in their heads, well, I'm going to be trying to help the proletariat per se. But, you know, obviously, modern events and what's going on in people's personal experiences, but the world at large has a great effect upon what the writer's working on. And, um, you know, there have, of course, have been the waves of nationalism and the waves of romanticism. and. You know, putting the hero out there as a hero, putting the hero out there as the villain, um, and you know, I'd have to think a little bit more about okay. that. Yeah, that's a I'll that's a quick there. answer there. Thank you about nationalism and pastoralism and the quick, easy answers. Yeah, right. But no, I think that's a really interesting point to look at the the political backdrop um, of the of the writer and the you know what's going on you know yeah, in, in that political context. Informs the writing, but. Um, national kismet, uh, or, you know, kudzo, <laughs> is affecting uh, the content, perhaps. Definitely. Any either comments on Jim or any other things we want to just run, run away from? No commenting on well, me. <laughs> or we can just run away from that question and go someplace else. I, I just want to say that, that for me personally, the fantasy element allows me to to not comment, but kind of um, digest the current political scene and write about it in a way that isn't didactic. Like in the last couple of novels, a lot of the stuff from the last eight years in American adventures overseas and, and all this other stuff and, and some of the abuses has come out in the novels, but it's not, in a, it's not telling you how to, how to read it. It's not telling you is it good or it's bad. It, it's different because it's in the fantasy context. So it kind of leaves it up to you to decide 
how you want to process that. So if there's like a suicide bomber in the latest novel, it's not telling you what it, the context's so different that it's more it, it 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 kind of it allows it to to be to be integral to the novel and and not take you out of the novel and yet still be reflecting what's going on in the real world. And I'd also like to say that uh, there's two uh, female writers, relatively recent, uh, Ellen Kushner and Elizabeth Lynn, who've also been doing, I think, non-conciliatory fantasy. Oh, yeah. So, uh, Anybody yet? Okay. Um, yeah, I may as well say it. Uh, Please do. I've been writing a lot of my military SF, as well as the horror stuff that I started with as a way to deal with Vietnam. And, uh, but it was a way for me to deal with Vietnam. I wasn't trying to you know, convince the world of anything. I was just trying to keep myself between the ditches. Uh, I hadn't really made the connection until my editor David Hartwell did a couple of years ago in an essay that the military SF as I was doing it was exactly the same as the horror that I was doing a little earlier. Mm -hmm. And I thought, huh, he's right. And it, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here now. I would be a moderately successful lawyer <laughs> in central North Carolina uh, if I hadn't been drafted out of Duke Law School. That made me a writer. But not because I had something to write about, but because I had to write to keep myself between the ditches. So. Um, I was just going to touch on, a, before we go to questions, I was going to touch on a few um, works or authors that I think you know, might, might inform the discussion a bit. Um, Fritz Leiber's heroic fantasy work was obviously um, a, a, a reaction or a dialogue with what came before with Robert E. Howard, and yeah. I think there were a lot of elements of more complexity, complexity that weren't necessarily in the earlier pulp stuff. I think he's an important, you know, on the road to what we're discussing. I also think um, Carl Edward Wagner's Kane mm -hmm. fiction mm -hmm. is another really good example. Um, both of those are sp explicitly in the heroic fantasy subgenre as opposed to the kind of bigger fantasy kingdoms. Um, but also, I wanted a newer author. No, oh, that's not in the last 10 years, so I won't talk about that. So anyway, um, if anybody else doesn't want to make any more com comments right now, then I'm going to open it up to questions. A couple things. One, if you could, one thing. There's a lot of people that want to talk. Has there been any horror or um, fantasy based on World War II or the Holocaust, which was uh, certainly the much more horrific I mean, that to try to deal with that. Can you name any examples of, well, I mean, uh, Slaughterhouse-Five sort of comes as an example of uh, mainstream work that has a couple of fantasy elements in it. You're referring to the World of Darkness series? Okay. Yeah. 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 The World of Darkness. But that's more, well, I don't think Okay. That's actually a good, you know, is clearly going to inform and touch on a lot of fantasy work. But I think it's it's like you were talking about. You know, the Jeff was talking about. They don't. I don't necessarily. I think a lot of the good fantasy you don't see the one to one. Mm -hmm. This is a you know uh, we're talking explicitly about X, Y, or Z. I think you know clearly the events of World War II and the Holocaust influenced so much of late 20th century literature. 
Well, we, we could but, jump on our genre and say yeah. uh, Harris's yeah, right. uh, Fatherland. Yeah. I mean, Ooh, it's yeah. alternative history. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 Also, um, there's a, a kind of a cult writer out of England named David Britton who, through Savoy Press, wrote a couple of books directly about the Holocaust that got him into quite a bit of trouble, actually, I, I think the um, censors. So. Um, I think because when you try to write about something like that and you also want to do it in a satirical way, you run the risk of looking like you are actually a proponent of what you are satirizing. And, and actually that I don't think, and actually, right. but he used the horror element to not, so it wasn't trivialized, but readers had a hard time distinguishing the author's point of view from the point of view of the characters, some of which were SS officers. I think that's a perfect, um, a, a problem that has plagued some of uh, Michael Moorcock's work, mm. oh, which, right, who is also one of the, I think, you know, archetypes that you could point to of non-conciliatory fantasy, and certainly an interesting, you know, um, in juxtaposition to a lot of other um, writers who may have been coming from very different experiences, but they both ended up doing variations of these non non-conciliatory fantasies. Um, I'm going to jump over to the right here then make my way across. You had a question? Well, mine's is more of a comment yeah. on what I find conciliatory and non-conciliatory. Yeah. For myself, what I find most conciliatory are the stories of people who pick up the pieces and put their lives back together. Mm. Despite... Right, right. Uh, rather than the specifics of the world they're in. Okay. So the consolation coming from um, from character and plot rather than setting, yeah. and and some and and the deeper themes. Yeah, definitely. I'm particularly uh, fond of that when it's done on a big scale. You know, the, the story of redemption, actual redemption. You know. Right. So are there any good? It breaks uh, the sharp end. Uh, the sharp end. Redliners. Red yeah. yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I'm gonna um, go with the orange shirt there. Harrison, you were seems like you were about to go into a sustained remark about hero, tradition of hero. Do you have more to say about the deeper, darker roots of that? Well, yeah. I think it's it's become a simplistic notion now. I mean, if you look back at the early heroes. Uh, Gilgamesh, Odysseus, you know, you name them. They, they're all flawed. They're all flawed characters. And deeply. And that is what makes them intrinsically interesting because we recognize ourselves in, in, in that. Um, and I think when when you reach a point where it's become such a canonization, such a, a series of tropes, then the hero as archetype sort of loses all its nuance. And so it becomes simply the person who's going to walk through the scenario and the story and the setting and save the world. Uh, yeah, it, yeah. It's worth remembering that Enkidu actually gets in trouble yeah. because he turns down a female's proposition in a really coarse and brutal fashion. And she's a goddess. Yeah. And, but, but, you know, he, this, is, this is not somebody who is put in a bind. It's somebody who is coarsely insulting to a woman who propositions him. And she ain't a woman. So I just want to touch briefly on the idea of definitions of hero. Um, you know, you, you bring up you know characters, flawed heroes who overcome their their flaws. Mm -hmm. That's what makes them heroic, and that certainly seems to have changed with some of our more you know less round heroic characters. Well, but I'd also, say in the modern sensibility, when you encounter the flawed hero, they overcome their flaws, and a more uh, historical, traditional sense, it's actually they succeed in spite of or spite of their ignoring flaw. their flaws. In fact, it's, it's the flaw that drives the story. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and I also yeah. want to touch on the changing definition of anti-hero. Sorry, real quick, I will get back to questions. But um, I think this is really rich as well because you know I've seen anti-hero described in the traditional sense of like Hamlet, whose flaws overcome him, and he is unsuccessful because of his flaws and that kind oh, of. Oh, he avenged his father. But, <laughs> but you know, but now, but now anti-hero is you know thanks thanks in part to writers like Moorcock or whatever. But anti-heroes are more different, or Lord Fowles Bane, or you, these anti-heroes are just bastards that we end up rooting for anyway. And it's not that they're heroic characters who are flawed and are fallen because of their flaw. They're bastards. And that changing definition of anti-hero, I think, is also related tangentially to, to discussions of, of cons- consolation and non-consolatory fantasy. I'm going to, if there's any reactions to that real quick, but I'm going to jump over. Can I get uh, Rick in the far left over there? Uh, when we are talking about World War I and strikes me, if you consider Tolkien's fiction conciliatory fantasy, World War I was, to a certain extent, a conciliatory war. The war to end all wars. We look at the wars we're fighting now, they are not conciliatory in any case. Perhaps it strikes me as not too surprising that fantasy is conciliatory fighting. Well, what I find interesting about that, and I was just thinking about this, is that in terms of heroes and anti-heroes, I think more and more they're defined by constraint, which is to say they have had to compromise some part of themselves, even though they're still trying to do the right thing, which is a situation a lot of us and a lot of people in power these days find themselves in as well, which is to say that you can still be a good person and do a, a bad deed, even on the way to trying to do something good. And so I think that the, the complexity there is quite interesting. You know, I don't know. Hmm. Um, I'll hit Scott right in front here. Uh, you mentioned Robert E. Howard as uh, the person that Fritz was writing a reaction to. That kind of like implied that Howard wasn't writing non-conciliatory fantasy. Uh, I kind of argue that he was one of uh, the archetypes of non-conciliatory fantasy. When he was writing, it brought the same sensibility to uh, fantasy that uh, Hammond and Chandler were bringing to the tech story at the mm-hmm. time, a very rough cast. And you take a look at Conan, he was not a particularly admirable person. He was no. a rapist, a murderer, a thief, a brigand, a pirate. None of these are exactly uh, traits that's going to have St. Peter uh, sending you to the express lane. Well, I think that's a good, a good point. Um, I would argue that conciliatory fantasy, non-conciliatory fantasy, does not necessarily hinge upon if your protagonist, how gritty it is or how dark it is. What I find an interesting correspondence between Howard's work and Tolkien's work is they were both have a sense of the good old days. It's just the definition of good old days is different. Yeah. You know, Howard's definition point. of this civilization, this opulent civilization that just denigrates humanity and if we were all just, you know, living as barbarians out on the frontier, it would be a lot better. Uh, is I, a and, reoccurring theme. And I think it's somewhat a reaction of social mores. I think the pinnacle of that is, I was going to say is in fantasy fiction, but I guess we could call it male wish fulfillment fantasy fiction. Mm. Um, the evolve of modern hero that way would be look at how James Bond as a character changed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah. he was a very non-conciliatory hero at the beginning, um, whereas he needs to be a, 
a slightly more PC likable hero these days. And mm -hmm. that's an example of what you're talking about. And, you know, in a very visible, easily see how that has changed over the years. Just out of curiosity, do you think that the difference between a Vance and a Howard Beyond style and everything else is that Vance doesn't buy into his heroes and Howard does? Yeah. I mean, because I haven't Oh, I think Howard that's absolutely that, true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, Howard's, so up, certainly you know. Difference. So it's up to the readers to not buy into Howard's Howard heroes. Howard is closer to, to wish fulfillment yeah. fantasy, yeah. yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, I'm going to jump um, on the on the end corner there with the vest and the black. Yes, ma'am. Um, what do you think is the reward that the reader receives for reading non Ooh. I told you I was sick. <laughs> <laughs> no, I... It's I, not just me. No. <laughs> yeah, I, seriously. Uh, I was right about the world. Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, yeah, that's exactly it, Dave. I was yeah. gonna, that was my that's initial response, too. Yeah. When, when you see a world around you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jeff, Am I missing you gonna, something? Jeff, you were going to say something? <laughs> no, I wasn't going to say anything at all, Jeremy. I want to hear from Paula. What's your question? Well, I mean, I just have this question about uh, I, the because authors exist in the marketplace. Um, I, I I started wondering about the idea. Of, if you're writing, a lot of the discussion is centered about the idea of contemporary fiction as something that's gritty or it's dark or it's this or that. But it's generally giving the reader just what they fucking want. Um, I mean, if I read Glenn Cook and the Black Company, I'm I'm in for multiple books. So in some sense, I'm, I'm being consoled all the way along as a reader. I'm very safe in that experience. Um, and, and so I, there have been a few books that I've read where I would say that my experience as a reader was, was a, 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 a painful one, where I was either rocked back on my heels in some way, the, the, answer, the, the, the conclusion was, was truly daunting or or yeah. uncomfortable to me. Um, the one that uh, comes to mind right now is actually M.T. Anderson's Thirsty, uh, which is a young adult novel. Um, I finished that. I wanted to throw it across yeah. the room. Yeah. And I was like, fuck you, you motherfucker. And I'm never, <laughs> I'm never reading another book of yours again. Um, that was, so that's become my sort of working definition. I think, I think, no, 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 yeah, no, that, that's I interesting. I yeah. an uncomfortable space and didn't want to be there. That's a, I think that ties directly into her question of yeah. like the reader, what is the impetus? What is the reader trying to get out of it? And I think there's, you can have that, when people are looking for that confirmation of their worldview, the world really is fucked up. And then you can just dive into Glenn Cook and, like, and have it reinvent, reinforce your worldview. But the willingness to accept that the world is really fucked up and choose those type of narratives is the first step towards getting your reaction to to that book because I don't think readers go, man, I want to just be so uncomfortable and unhappy when I get done with this book. <laughs> they want, I mean, they, you know, they are looking to be consoled and I think this genre subverts expectations. I mean, that's clearly what's okay, at the yeah. core. But there's also a difference between a good book and a bad book. There's a book that subverts your expectations but it doesn't fit the structure of the book by the end. Is that what your reaction was to that book? I mean, you're saying you'd never read that author again but you seem to also be respecting that author for kind of kicking you in the face. I, I, I never deliberately picked up another yeah. So you're saying you're dissatisfied with the book. You're not saying that you I liked was, the fact that you were challenged. No, I did not like that. But did you think I that it was suitable for the book? Uh, I mean, that that's the way the book should have ended. I think that it's the way M.T. Anderson wanted it to end. Oh, okay. So um, you're saying it's a bad book. I was... 
I'm curious about the tension between commerce, which actually says that you need to engage with your reader and and keep reaching out to them in some way, okay, um, yeah. which well, creates a conciliatory uh, set of, uh, th that, that's the part I want to touch on. There's uh -huh. the other side of non-conciliatory is writer to audience. Right. Yeah. And um, I, when I was in a, a con at, in, in England in Nottingham just a few months ago, I was sitting with a couple of people who sort of read up a lot of my stuff. And at one point, at the end of the night in the conversation, this guy turns to me and he says, "That's what that's what it is about you, Erickson. You think about your audience, and you don't give a fuck." Right, and that is actually how I approach things in yeah. terms of in terms of my relationship to the audience. I'm just going to write what I write, and mm -hmm. if you jump on board, great. Yeah, right. But if you don't, as an editor, and, and to all the writers in the audience, I suggest that's the approach you should yeah. take. Actually, you can't anticipate the audience. Yeah. I write for my audience. I am my audience. Right. Exactly. Yeah. There you, you want to buy it? Exactly. That's great. I I'm, I love that. Yeah. But. But there's another point there too, and I, I've been reading a lot of noir, I've read a lot of noir for a long time, mystery fiction, and there is a certain satisfaction in something that seems non-conciliatory, but it really is, because yeah, there's a yeah. hyper-reality to the gritty, grim streets of the detective and everything that doesn't actually have anything to do with reality. It's right. actually a hyper-reality that leaves out the part where the detective has to go to the corner store to buy some milk and gets bitched out by his ex-girlfriend about something petty and locks himself out of his car and all the other crap that happens to people on a daily basis. So, yeah. I gotta yeah, so. share my all-time favorite blurb here. It was for a wonderful first novel. It's a science fiction novel, but very dark and non-conciliatory. Um, Starfish by Peter Watts. Came out in 97. New York Times notable book. Candace Jane Dorsey sent me an email at like 3 in the morning saying, um, uh, here's my initial reaction to it. I'll actually send something tomorrow you can use. Uh, I loved it. Made me want to open up my wrists and crawl into a hot tub. <laughs> I'm going to jump back some more questions here um, because I know the audience has been very patient here. You in the center there with your hand up in the yes in the brownish shirt. Okay, Doug. Um, I was wondering what the panel thinks about when it comes to non-conciliatory fantasy, uh, like the tradition of Arthuriana, particularly from the Mallory branch, because I mean when. When you haven't read it, you think... Good old Gawain. Yeah, you have <laughs> shining armor. And then you read it, and the, most of these knights are terrible people. There's rape, there's incest, there's betrayal, there's murder. And the only shred of hope you get at the very end of this, after everything's fallen apart, is that Arthur is sailing away into the mist, and he's most likely... To bring back those wonderful times all over again. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Because people that aren't familiar with the old traditions, they just think knights in shining armor. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, certainly, I need the idealization. <coughs> Wonderful series out there that does not, you know, embrace the mythology at all is Jack White series, the Camelot yeah. Chronicles, C A M U L O D. Terrific books, yeah. but they're not actually fantasy. Yeah. Um, actually, yeah. yeah, I actually like Mary Stewart's Merlin Cycle. Yeah, it's been a yeah. long time since I read it, so I mean, but Mary Stewart, uh, definitely. Yeah, um, I'm gonna try and sorry, jump back. Um, the woman in the black. <laughs> Uh, no, I was, I came in a little late, so I don't know if you touched on this one, but where would you put Arslan by MJ and Annie? No. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I found it conciliatory, but I'm warped that way. <laughs> um, another black shirt over there. <laughs> uh, I know he doesn't need any more publicity, but uh, what about early Stephen King? 
Well, I think that's a good example of, of that, that crossover of horror being part of it and by its very nature being non-conciliatory. Um, although, I, I don't know about Carrie, that revenge motif is a conciliatory mm. motif. mostly talking about like early Dark Power, The Stand. Oh, uh, oh the but mist, that's... The well, The Mist especially. The yeah. Mist, yes. The yeah. Stand. Uh, yeah. I think is more conciliatory because right. it's it's that thing between dark and gritty versus. Yeah, Salem's Lot, basically, not everybody survives, but yeah, that's conciliatory. That that's Dracula and modern. Yeah, Dracula. as much as Stephen King wants to torture his readers, he wants he, he wants to be conciliatory in the end. I feel. Yeah, Most and he even says that. Uh, yeah. The Shining. I mean, yes, the guy dies and. We're glad of it, but you know he's probably glad of it too. And he's <laughs> and he's managed yeah, to do some yeah. good in the process. <laughs> yeah. There's 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 another writer who kind of is on the edge of this discussion. Uh, early Jonathan Carroll um, is very non-conciliatory in his endings, and sometimes they work, and sometimes they feel like uh, this gentleman felt that it was manipulative. Uh, but he's somebody who definitely uses horror tropes in his early uh, early work, and then kind of takes the floor out from under you. I wanted to dig it really quick, the woman in the brown shirt with the longer hair. Yeah, um, I noticed at the beginning of our talk that all of you gentlemen, well, most of you, have the experience of having participated in one of the wars. And also, it's okay. No. Actually, no, only one. No. Only one. Only one. No. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Being an editor is like being in war, except not. There's all the genre wars, but that's a much, much uh, more whimsical thing. Sci-fi. I I don't think. I don't think race fail is whimsical. Sorry. I don't. That's not what I'm talking about. Thanks for putting me on spot. Yeah. 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 Mm. Now, women in this country, and also historically in Europe, did not participate as combatants. At least they did not join the service, except in in the positions of nurses or administrators. However, they very often are the victims of these wars, the whole... Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Why is it that you mentioned so few female authors writing non-conciliatory fiction? Why do you suppose that is? That's a really interesting one, and I would throw it to the the demands of the marketplace. I think. Um, well, if Mr. Mintz was who I was thinking of. Do you feel that leadership <laughs> want to read a not conciliatory author? Perhaps Lauren K. Hamilton is the first one that comes to my mind. Yeah, right. As a non conciliatory author. Mm. No, she's very. She's very. Yeah, I'm hard. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> You can Not look at, say, uh, all right, let's go back a little bit and look at uh, Perkins Gilman, um, you know, Yellow yeah. Wallpaper and other stories, a terrific collection of... Angela you know, Carter. Very Angela Carter, yeah. Angela, Angela Carter. Carter. We should be talking about... Um, yeah. um, oh, what's her face? And if, the, if people in the audience would like to shout out some non-conciliatory female writers oh, that we fail... Ricky Ducournay is a good example. Thank I don't you. know if you're familiar with her, but... Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, thank you for bringing that up because it was just occurring to me that the, the discussion of gender, you know, we talk about the experience of war and you're right, like the, the dislocations and horrors of these conflicts are just as impactful on, you know, on women in the, in the countries that they happen. And so the yeah, role but, of... But, but that's all taking the presumption that whatever you're writing, no matter what your fantasy world, you're still following the same gender norms as you would get mm. here. 
And I, I oh, take yeah. exception to that because you know I'm, I'm actually placing females in the combat, in line of combat. So there's a different way of approaching it. So maybe that's non-conciliatory as well. Now, did you take that key from other, were there other writers where you've seen them where their gender roles were non-conformatory like that? Or did you well, not see that and choose to do that as reaction? Yeah, well, there was two things. I mean, the anthropology side and the history side, there's plenty of examples of um, uh, women in, in combat situations. And, and there's ones present day in Africa. Um, at, at the same time, there was a, a large reaction against the, the Northern European medieval mm. um, standardization of, of gender roles all the way through. So, okay. Well, yesterday I was discussing with Dave how you know you could look at uh, Frankenstein, first science fiction novel, or maybe your first non-conciliatory fantasy. Yeah. Um, the and, and that's the reaction of you know is yeah. it a horror story? Is it you know the appalling thing? But. Yeah, I'm harder pressed. Uh, it I, does seem to be a male-dominated. Um, it depends on the it depends on the form because when I think of modern non-conciliatory fantasy short story writers, right. they're almost all female. There you go. That's true. Yeah. I, right. <laughs> Um, I really Go ahead, I really apologize, everybody. We didn't get your questions. Oh, sure. um, we are at two o'clock. I want to get the next panel in here yeah. so they aren't delayed. And I'm going to ask everybody on the panel to step aside and go out. Thank you very much, everyone. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.